my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. If this is your very first time here, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for joining us today. Also, welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. We also welcome you to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, today is no ordinary day, folks. Uh, I don't know if you know what today is, but today is no ordinary day. If you were with us on Friday, we were here reflecting on the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. But this Sunday morning, we reflect and we celebrate his resurrection. Because how many, amen. That's a great place to clap. Because if, if, if he didn't rise again, folks, then we're wasting our time here. But the king is risen, and we celebrate that this morning. Easter changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. At least it should. Amen? Amen. So if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series that we've been calling, Who is Jesus Really? And I'm actually continuing that series today and actually concluding that series today on this fine Easter Sunday. We've been saying that there's a whole lot of things that you can get by in life without knowing. There's a whole bunch of things that if you, you, know, you don't know them, you'll be okay. But as I've said week after week, there's a short list of things that you'll be in big trouble if you don't know these things or if you don't know about these things. And on the top of that list is the answer to the question, who is Jesus really? We've been using as a springboard for this series uh, Jesus' proclamation in John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And what Jesus is saying in that faithful passage, he's saying that I am everything you need. He says, I'm the way. I'm direction. I'm the path. I'm the course that you should take. I'm the truth in a world full of spin and misdirection. I'm the truth. You can count on me. You can rely on me. He's saying, I'm the life. I'm actual life. I'm also the means to life. Jesus proclaims that if we put our trust in him, if we put him in the mix of our life, if we put him in the mix of our world, that will never be the same. And that's a good place to say amen. amen. And today I just want to conclude this series with a message that I'm simply calling Jesus is the game changer. Jesus is the game changer. And if you need a definition for that word game changer, that phrase, it's a newly introduced element or factor that changes an existing situation or activity in a significant way. They need to put that next to Jesus in the dictionary. All right? Newly introduced factor or element that changes the game in a significant way. And if we look throughout the course of history and inventions and industry and politics, there have been game changers as far back as we can read in books. In the political system, there have been fresh young people with wonderful ideas that have changed the game of politics, such that anybody getting in the game after that or anybody who wishes to operate in any political sphere has to sort of step their game up a little bit because the game changer entered the thing. You look about sports and you look at the likes of people like Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth, or you know, famous sports figures who have entered the game and shattered records. Everybody's copying them. All the kids who aspire to be sports figures are studying their films now, looking at their techniques, now looking at them on YouTube. They've changed the game forever. You look at industry and technology, things like the iPhone. Listen, it's changed the game. Everybody else in the game has to do something different now. iPhone is the thing to beat, right? And we look at our own personal lives, right? Our own personal lives. There are people who've been introduced to our lives that have absolutely changed our game. Mine is sitting right here, my lovely wife. When I met my wife, I thought, you know what? I can work with her. I can work with her. 
She needs a little work. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really improve some things here. But guess what? The joke was on me. My game was changed forever, man. I, I, don't, I can't imagine my life without this woman. I can't imagine what I did without her. She covers my blind spots. She's a mirror for me. She tells me things that I'm doing terribly and things I need to prove on. She's my biggest cheerleader. She's changed my game forever, right? We're talking about game changers. Well, what, 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 what all of those innovators and all those individuals have done for all those particular aspects of, in fields of study and sports and all this sort of thing, Jesus wants to do for the world, and he wants to do for your personal life right here and right now. All right? Jesus wants to change the game in your entire life. And there are several aspects of this that um, are, we could look at if we wanted to on Resurrection Sunday. But there's one particular passage that I want to focus on. One particular passage that I think is an extraordinary example of how Jesus changes the game in the life of these young men. I want to look today at Luke chapter 24. And I want to start at verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there are Bibles on the edges of the rows. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that Bible with you. It's a gift from us to you. We'll also be projecting the scriptures on the screens as we go along here. If you're tracking along with us on your, uh, the Bible on your phone, feel free to text or tweet somebody. Tell them they still got about an hour and some change. They can still get down here. We'll be down here just for a minute longer, okay? Luke chapter 24, start at verse 13. Before I get into it today, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this Resurrection Sunday and what it means. Thank you, Lord, that we get to join with the church universal today and celebrate the fact that you are no longer dead. You are who you said you were. You did what you said you'd do, and we are are rejoicing in that fact this morning. Lord, there's no coincidence that the people are gathered here. Lord, there's no coincidence that the people who are listening to us through um, our website or podcast are hearing this today. Lord, I pray that you would put power on these words. Put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Lord, would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light may shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Let me just set this up for a bit. Jesus has already been, he's already suffered. He's already been punished. He's already been beaten and bloody. He's been crucified. He's been buried. And, um... So all of, all of his disciples, all the people that have followed him and had hoped in him, they're kind of disappointed right now. And that's kind of an understatement. They're disappointed. They're wandering around. They're roaming. They're scattered. They don't quite know what happened. They put their hope in this fella. And it seemed to have, you know, he seemed to have fallen short of their expectations. You have to understand that Jesus wasn't the first guy that's claimed to be the Messiah. Many false messiahs had come before him. And Jesus' followers really thought that this was the guy. They really thought that this was the guy. They saw the miracles. They heard his teaching. They were wild by this fellow. So when he actually succumbed to death and when he was crucified and buried, they were really quite confused. So they're scattered and they're sad. They're depressed. And it seems as though Jesus was just another one of those fake, phony messiahs that have come and gone. But then the resurrection happens. And there's still some confusion as to if the accounts can believe and this sort of thing. So we pick up the story here in Luke chapter 24. We start at verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. 
But God kept them from recognizing him. Verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short. Sadness written across their face. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This, is, this all happened three days ago. Verse 22, then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who had told them Jesus is alive. Some men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, their destination, and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour... They were on their way back to Jerusalem. They were found, I'm sorry, there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has risen and he appeared to Peter. Now, I know that's a long passage, but that's a very telling passage. And I love this story because it gives us, I'll personalize it today, it gives me uh, a perfect picture of myself. Gives me a perfect picture of myself. And you can hop on this you know, bandwagon if you'd like. But it gives me a perfect picture of myself. Here Jesus has been crucified and punished like he said he would. He's risen. Some accounts are circulating about, you know, his resurrection. But still these guys, where are they headed? Are they headed into the thick of things? Are they headed into the thick of the action? Are they waiting for their next orders? Are they waiting to see what happens next? No, where are they headed? They're headed home. They're on this long trek back to Emmaus, back to their hometown. And this is often where Jesus finds us. It's a perfect picture of where Jesus finds us, walking home, walking away, walking to some destination other than where we should be walking, walking home. And this is a perfect picture also of how Jesus comes running after us, encounters us, because he's got some work for us to do. This is a perfect picture of how Jesus makes things happen for us, how he changes the game in our life. There's a process to this, and I think this particular passage is a perfect sort of template to sort of superimpose over our lives, and it really describes for us how Jesus goes about that many times. I just want to pick, uh, pull out some things here as I, as I walk along, so please just track with me. The first thing we see Jesus do is Jesus seeks them out. Jesus seeks them out. They've got this terrible news. They're all sad and upset. They're walking home. And what does Jesus come to? He comes looking for them. He comes to seek them out. And this is one of the things I like most about Jesus. He has no reason at all. We have no right for him to pursue us. 
We've walked away from the things he says. We've taken his words lightly. We haven't seen the things that he's plainly laid out. We've walked away in search of something shiny or something new or something that seems like it'll pay greater rewards. And what does Jesus do? He has every right to leave us alone and pick somebody else. But what does he do? He comes looking for us. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. Jesus goes after them. We just finished a month ago a series through the book of Jonah. And the whole book of Jonah is about basically a guy that God has a plan for, a guy that God has some work for, but this guy has got better plans, so he thinks. The Lord says to Jonah, listen, go and do X, Y, and Z. Jonah says, no, bro, I got something else to do. And Jesus says, and the Lord says, no, you're going to do this, right? So I think it's no different with these guys. These guys are followers of Jesus. No, they're not the 12. No, they're not the closest disciples. But these are followers of Jesus. They've been invested in. He's given them gifts and talents and influence. He's poured into these guys by various means. And you think he's just going to let them walk away? Not so. And it's not any different with us. I told you, everybody is on this earth. God created you for a purpose, and that purpose is his purpose. He's invested talent, time, energy, resource. He's given you influence. He's given you people around you to steward. You think you're just going to walk away? I got news for you. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because some of you have tried. You've tried to get away. You've tried to walk away from the church. You've tried to walk away from Jesus. But he just won't leave you alone, will he? You can't turn on the TV without hearing a message that reads your mail. You're not even watching the preacher. It's a commercial speaking to you from the Lord. You can't go into work without that Bible-thumping Christian next cubicle over that won't shut up about Jesus and how much he loves you. Right? You can't even open the newspaper without an ad for the South Suburban Vineyard falling out, inviting you to celebrate Easter weekend. Right? You cannot get away. And while that might annoy you to no end, you ought to say, thank you, Lord. Because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness and mercy, the psalmist says, that follows us every single day and, don't, and won't let us go even when we want to let go. Jesus comes in search of these fellows. He comes looking for them. He comes looking for you and me. Especially when we're acting a fool. Especially when we're so intoxicated by anger or disappointment. Especially when we've been let down. Especially when we've washed our hands of the things that concern God. He, he comes looking for us because he's that kind of God. He's that kind of God. So he comes in search of these fellas. And he doesn't stop there. He comes in search of these fellas. And when he finds them, though he's veiled himself from them, he interacts with them. Don't you glad you serve an interactive Jesus? Some would tell you that Jesus was active when he was here on earth, but you know what? He probably won't interact with us again until he comes back again. Listen, I didn't sign up for that. If I'm going to follow a guy, I'm going to want to talk to him. I'm going to need to get some instructions. I'm going to need to get some direction from this fellow. I'm going to need to talk to him when I'm uh, angry and bitter, when I need some answers. I'm going to need this God to interact with me, to reason with me, to come and sup with me from time to time so I can remember what I signed up for. And I'm so glad that Jesus is interactive, that he's not too busy, that he's not too regal, that he's not too far off someplace else doing something too important to come and talk to me, to come and talk to you. He's an interactive Jesus. He wants to do business 
with you. Especially when you're acting a fool. Especially when your back is to the thing that he's called you to face. He wants to interact with you. And this is what he does. He asks them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along as if he doesn't know? What are you talking about, guys? Listen, I'm a stranger. I'm not Jesus. Let me in on this conversation. What are you talking about? Scripture says they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. Jesus almost blew his cover. They said, surely, man, this is the talk of the town. I mean, check your news feed, man. This is, this is, this is what's happening. Right? You don't know about this? But Jesus just goes along. He says, well, what things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, they continue. The man from Nazareth, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles. They just sort of run down the list. Our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over. They handed him over. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them, Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Now, this is a little confusing. These guys get reports that confirm what Jesus had told them. You'd think they'd say, oh, my goodness, he's risen. Let me go and wait by the tomb. Let me go in search of this guy. No, but something else has happened. And as Jesus is interacting with these guys, he uncovers the problem. I didn't say that Jesus discovers the problem because he's Jesus. He already knows. The problem is we don't know the problem. The problem is ours and we don't know the problem. So Jesus, as he interacts, that's what I love about Jesus, as he interacts with these guys, he helps them just sort of talk their way through their problem. He uncovers the problem. And oftentimes, when I counsel people these days, I, I, I let them talk. The more you talk, the more you discuss your issue, the more you sort of lay it out, the more you kind of come to your own positive conclusions. You know, as a young Christian leader and as a young pastor, I wanted to fill the counseling session with my voice. I've got some wise things to say to you. You should do this, that, and the other. These days, <laughs> these days, for the most part, I just say, well, tell me more about that. And what, what happened, right? And you see as these guys talk, I mean, if, if they would read a transcript of what they said, they go, man, this sounds really silly to me. This sounds really foolish. But as Jesus, being an interactive Savior, he talks with these guys because he cares about them. He's investing his time in these guys because he's got work for them to do. He's got a purpose on their life. He's put identity in them, and he needs these guys to be on the same page with him. So he interacts with them, and he uncovers the problem. And what he uncovers is that the culprit, the problem is that they're disappointed. They're disappointed. They're disappointed. Verse 21 says, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped. We're disappointed. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed? Every now and then I get some news and it just has a, you know, an effect on my whole, like, not only just my emotional system, but my body. I get some news, and I'm just, oh. You ever get some news like that? You ever get disappointed? It's just like this weight comes over, and you're like, oh, my goodness. Why did that happen? I was counting on that. 
I was hoping on that. These guys had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd taken a pass on, I'm sure, some good opportunities, some good people. They've left probably good-paying jobs. They put themselves at risk. Jesus was a popular guy, but he was popular in, in many respects for all the wrong reasons. There were people after this guy. They put their neck on the line for this guy. They were in arguments with their family and friends. They said, no, Jesus is the real deal. Just wait and see. He's come to rescue Israel. He's come to rescue us. You just wait. He's going to be a triumphant king. He said it. Just wait. And now all of those words are playing in their hearts again. All those words are playing in their minds. Not to mention the fact that they're headed home. What do you think waiting for them at home? I told you so. I told you you shouldn't have left your father here to do all this work, to follow some Messiah, some Jesus. Well, where is he now? They're headed home. Having failed, apparently having been duped to believing a Savior that didn't really save. Disappointment. And how many of you know disappointment will kill you? It'll kill you spiritually. Especially if you're disappointed in things that pertain to God. It'll kill you spiritually. It'll kill you emotionally. And true, deep disappointment will even have a profound physical effect on your life such that it could contribute to a physical death. Disappointment can kill you. It could take you out of the game. Especially when it's tied to something as important, something as central as faith. And many of the people that have come in and out of these doors over the last several years to this new church plant that we've started here, I'm finding are people who have been disappointed by folks who have, who have um, sort of ruined God's reputation, been disappointed by church folks, disappointed by preachers and pastors and leaders in the church. And I realize often it's kind of frustrating that I, you know, when somebody comes here, I'd like to be dealing with a clean slate. I'd like to be judged on my own merits, on my own teaching, on my own interactions with people. But oftentimes, I'm in the basement the second they walk in the door because somebody who stood up in Jesus' name abused their influence. They abused their power. They abused the platform that their, you know, that, 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 that their office gave them. And I'm, often, I'm in the basement. I'm starting in the basement with folks. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. But I'm up for the job. Don't hear me saying that. Okay? <laughs> But people are disappointed. And they tie that disappointment not to somebody who mishandled the influence that God gave them. They don't tie that to a flawed human nature that exists in all people. They don't tie that to corruption within the church. They tie that, unfortunately, to Jesus. And because God's man let you down, Jesus let you down. Because the church let you down, uh, Jesus let you down. Because the church added some things to the Bible and promised you some stuff on top of what Jesus promises you. They say, by the way, don't, not to do that in the back of the book. They say don't do that. So this book is complete. You don't need to add anything to it. No appendices. You don't need to add anything. But nonetheless, they've added some things. And as a faithful person you are, you bought it. And you assign that disappointment to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you failed me. You let me down. And it's caused you to go the opposite direction from the thick of the things that Jesus has called us to. The culprit was disappointment. Disappointment. And because of that disappointment, they've quit. They've quit. They've gone home. They've thrown in the towel. 
But Jesus, being interactive, he catches up with them. He talks with them. He uncovers their problem. He lets them flesh it out. And what he does next is very important. He begins to reason with them. So glad that the picture of Jesus that exists, this angry dude that just really wants to take the ruler and hit us on the knuckles with it. I'm so glad that that's not the true picture of Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't soft. Don't get me wrong. Jesus isn't soft. But he catches up with us. He interacts with us. He uncovers the problem, and he reasons with them in his own gentle way. And this is how he gently reasons with them. Verse 25, you foolish people. (laughs) Oh, smooth Jesus. You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. This is Jesus' gentle manner. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Only Jesus can handle people this way. Only Jesus can call you a fool and you just take it and go, oh, my Savior. Right? Jesus reasons with them. He says, listen, man. You guys missed the times, you know, when we were going over the prophets and the writings and all these things about myself? Did you guys miss that day at the temple? Did you miss those teachings? Go and listen to to the podcast because this is important. Jesus said, we talked about this. They told you about how I would have to suffer and die. Told you about how I would come with humble circumstances, to humble parents. I wouldn't come with pomp and circumstances. I wouldn't come in a regal robe. I wouldn't come with an entourage. I would come as Jesus. And as Jesus, I would have to deal with some things to deal with some things. I would have to take some pain and punishment. And I did that for you. I would have to succumb to a painful and humiliating death. I did that for you. Son, I didn't make this up. This edition didn't just come out. The prophets have talked about this for years. He reasons with them. He says, listen, let's get on the same side of the table here. I know you're disappointed, son, but you have no reason to be. I told you about this. I talked to you about this. And Jesus says, in short, listen, you're playing the fool here. You're living below your potential. You're supposed to be, dude, we're supposed to be getting after it. He's risen? Dude, let's go get him. He's risen? Let's go tell some people. He's risen, dude. Let's, let's open up some, let's plant some churches somewhere. Let me tell the Gentiles and everybody else, he's risen. He's risen. We've got every reason to celebrate, every reason to get busy, every reason to get in the thick of things. And the devil has us playing the fool, blinded and intoxicated with disappointment, blinded and disappointed because we grouped our, our wants in, in with our needs. I was telling somebody the other day, I'm careful not to do that. It's so easy to do that. See, once you group your wants in with your needs, and Jesus promises to meet all your needs, all of a sudden, with those wants mixed in there, his his batting average goes down. Right? His accuracy rate goes down because you've assigned your wants as needs. You label them as needs. Jesus says, I'm going to meet every need. I'm going to give you everything you need. But they wanted Jesus to be a triumphant king. They wanted him to come and bust some heads, man, and get, get down to business. To deal with those who have humiliated those who stood against the armies of the living God. 
those who are occupying their place and making them serve it, you know, making them second rate. He wants them to deal with those. Jesus said, I didn't come to do this. My kingdom is not an earthly one. My kingdom's not an earthly one. But why? But that's what they wanted. And those wants became so important that it put lenses over their eyes and they could not see Jesus for who he really was. They couldn't see the fact that Jesus was saying all along, I am who I said I was. I am who I said I was. Through the prophets, through Moses, through scriptures, I am who I says, said I was. I think Jesus was a little disappointed that these guys didn't meet him at the tomb. That they weren't there when the stone was rolled away. They didn't take him at his word. But Jesus isn't done yet. He continues to do one of the things that he does best. He opens their eyes. He opens their eyes. Verse 28 says, By this time they were nearing Emmaus, and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him. This paints a funny picture to me, where Jesus was kind of like, All right, guys, you know, I'm leaving now. Just hoping that they say, Come, Jesus, come and eat with us, man. People do that to me all the time. I'm not going to point out anybody, Stephanie. Um, Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, come on, stay the night with us since it is getting late. This is the best thing they've ever done. This is the best thing they've ever done. Jesus is about to change the game. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And verse 31, and suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Boy, that's a loaded sentence in it. Their eyes were physically able to see now who Jesus really was. But this is the beginning of their spiritual eyes being opened as well. And when, when did this happen? It happened when Jesus fellowshiped with them. It happened when they invited him to dinner. When they made space at the table for Jesus. This happened when they said, listen, no, come on, I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm going to make another part of something so I can interact with you today. They didn't know that's what they were doing, but their lives were changed. The game is completely changed. You can read on. They're, they're ruined now for the kingdom. It's, it's all over for them now. The enemy has lost at this point. Jesus breaks bread with them. And the symbolism there breaks bread. Communion. Right? The implications of his suffering, his death, his body being broken. No doubt that there was wine there and they tasted of the cup. No, the imagery of his blood being poured out. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. What did they recognize? They recognized who Jesus was. And all of a sudden, since Jesus is sitting there in front of him, he must not be dead anymore. And it's all starting to come back. And they're probably realizing how foolish they must have sounded along that road. Not that it matters now. Jesus is here. Probably realizing that this, this guy did say that he would suffer and die. He told us that. Their eyes were open. Dr. Miles Monroe uh, says something that has completely changed my outlook on life and situations and circumstances. He says this, sight is the enemy of vision. Right? Sight, what I can see, circumstances, things that are around me, is the enemy. It complicates, it frustrates vision. What God told you, what you saw, the picture he gave you, 
of where you're going, where you're headed, who you really are. Sight, what I can see, is the enemy of vision. And doesn't that play out perfectly in these guys' lives? The circumstances were frustrating. The circumstances were less than ideal. And it completely negated the trustworthy words that Jesus spoke to them. Though all along these things were being confirmed, He's been beaten, he's been suffering, he's dying, this, that, and all these things are being confirmed. They're so intoxicated with disappointment, and the circumstances are speaking louder than what God spoke to them. It got them off of their square a little bit. Actually, a lot. Sight, what they saw, had complicated their vision. And as a young church planter, I've got, I've got to be careful not to let what I see complicate my vision. God promised me something big. He promised me something fruitful. He promised me something a long time ago that I held on to. But guess sometimes when I see more empty seats than filled ones, sometimes my sight gets in the way of what I saw, what God showed me. Sometimes what I'm seeing doesn't quite match up. And I can touch this. I can see this. This is more tangible to me oftentimes than what God spoke to me, what I, what I saw. And what Jesus says to us over and over and over again in so many words is if what you saw is not what you see, then you need to just keep moving. If what you saw is not what you see, if the vision that God gave you, if the words that he spoke powerfully to you is not what you presently see, doesn't mean that God's a liar. The scriptures tell us that that's not possible, okay? It just means that there's more work to be done. It just means that there's more things to press through. It just means that you need to dig in. And you need to press through some things. That some circumstances and people need to become beneath you now. That every circumstance and every, uh, uh, every situation that comes up that's not ideal shouldn't completely take you out of the game. That's called spiritual maturity. You develop endurance. The Lord gives you strength for the fight. You're not so taken by every situation and every circumstance, every disappointment, every bad word that somebody's spoken against you. You say, listen, what, what I see is not what I saw, so God must be doing something. God promised me that he'll take care of my family. It's tight right now, but I ain't going to quit on this thing. God promised me that he would use me mightily, and I'm still doing this thing over here. He must not be done with me yet. God promised me that he would save my whole family and my whole family would come to know him. Man, the picture that I see is far from that, but I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep being blameless before them because what I see is not what I saw, so I got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. Sight is the enemy of vision. And what Jesus does is he completely trumps what they've saw, what they've seen, and he reveals himself to them. He restores their spiritual and natural vision, and these guys are ruined for the kingdom of God. Suddenly their eyes are open and they recognize them. Recognize him. They recognize him. And the final and most important thing that Jesus does is he changes the game on these guys, is he changes their trajectory or he changes their course. He changes their path. All of this stuff is meaningless. The stuff that before this is meaningless if you don't do something different. If you don't live different. If you don't put some legs on your faith and walk it out. But you know that changes happen. You know that you've been in the presence of the living Savior when you put some legs on the thing and you start walking it out. And walking it out, there's some general things that are, that are applicable to all of us, but walking, at, walking it out is specific 
to the plan that God has given you. Specific to the identity that he's putting you. Specific to the assignment that he's given you. And Jesus, he deals with these guys. He interacts with them. He opens their eyes so that he can change their trajectory, change where they're headed, change their course. Verse 32 says, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? As he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures, that within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, back to the thick of things. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord is risen, and he appeared to Peter. Boy, this is taking taking a turn, hasn't it? We first found these guys walking sad, sullen, disappointed, on the way back home. After Jesus opens their eyes, they turn to one another and say, man, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't Jesus, through that short exposition of the writings of Moses and the prophets and the scriptures, didn't he just read our mail today? Didn't our heart feel warm? This King James says, didn't our hearts feel strangely warm? What is Jesus doing? He's changing their course, but first he has to change their hearts. He opens their eyes, but then he does a work on their hearts. And many of you are in that place right now. You're at the beginning stages of God opening your eyes. You've seen the fact that you're playing the fool. You've seen that you're living far below what God has planned for you. You've seen that you've taken something that doesn't relate to God. You've superimposed that on him. You've blamed him for something that he doesn't need to take the blame for. And you've been confused and you've been disoriented and you're walking away. But you're at the beginning stages of your eyes being opened and your heart being strangely warmed. And what are you finding as your heart changes? Your speech changes. The things that you say change. He says, man, our hearts burn within us. They get back together with all the brothers and they said, listen, he is risen. They're talking differently. Just a few moments ago, they had some other things to say. They were doubtful. They were disappointed. But Jesus has changed their heart and it changed the way they talk. And not only that, the most important thing, he changed the direction that they're heading in. And some of you are at the very beginning of that today. You desperately need for Jesus to come in and be a game changer in your life. You realize right now that you're living, the way you're living is not, and you may not even be some wretched sinner doing dastardly things behind closed doors. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying if you're doing anything other than what God put you here to do, you're heading in the opposite direction. And what Jesus wants to do for you is the same thing he did to these guys. He wants to change their hearts. He wants to change their speech. He wants to change their course or their path for the better. And you know the history. Some of you read the Bible. Read the book of Acts. These guys got busy, man. Peter's unrecognizable after the resurrection. Peter was prone to doubting and prone to, you know, uh, denying the Savior and all these sorts of things. But when you look at Peter, man, when the church is rolling, this guy, he's a different guy. There's something about the resurrection that validates everything that Jesus said. It confirms that God is who he says he is. His son is who he says he is. They said, man, we got to get to work now. We got to get busy right now. And my question to you is, do you see yourself in this story? I'll answer for you, yes. We see ourselves in this story. And some of us are at varying stages of this. Some of us right now, we haven't, we haven't really interacted with Jesus yet. We're just, we're just walking away. 
And you coming here today is the first step in the process where you've engaged Jesus for the first time or for the second time or for the third time, but you've engaged him and now he's speaking to you. Now he's interacting with you through these scriptures, through this picture of who he is. He's reasoning with you. He's trying desperately to open your eyes because he's got something for you to do. He's put stuff in you. He's got a work for you to do. And you do yourself a favor and just submit to it. I mean, you're not the slick one that's going to get away from the Lord. You're not that agile. You're not that quick. No, the Lord has you here for a reason. You're hearing this for a reason. And that's God got something for you to do. And if you take anything away from this Easter sort of Resurrection Sunday message, take this away, that Jesus is seeking you out. He's got your number. He's got your coordinates today. And that means you're important to him. Important enough for him to interact with you. And as he interacts with you, he reasons with you. He says, tell me about that. Tell me about your doubts. Tell me about your fears. Tell me about your objections to this thing. Tell me about your skepticism. Tell me about how you've been misused and mistreated. Tell me about it. Talk to me about it. Then he opens their eyes. He opens their eyes and he says, listen, I told you that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. And as we see Jesus for who he really is, See him for who he really is. Our lives and trajectories are changed. Where are you today? Worship team, you can come up. Where are you today? Where are you today? Listen, as we worship today, I want us to reflect on that. I want us to reflect on the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what the resurrection means for our life. Jesus is the great game changer. If we believe this stuff, then we ought to live differently. If we buy this stuff, then we ought to walk, talk, live differently. I'm going to resist the urge to be overly prescriptive at the end of this message, as preachers often do. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to deal with your hearts, particularly as we celebrate through worship and as we let the Lord just minister to us uh, through worship. I'm going to come back after, after a little bit. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. But I just want this worship to just soften your hearts. And I want you to do business with God. This is Jesus interacting with you as we worship and interact with him today. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you, Lord, for how you don't leave us as orphans. You don't leave us to flail and just figure this stuff out on our own. And Lord, even when we run from you and even when we turn our backs on you and to the, our backs on the things that you've called us to do, you still come searching. You still come seeking after us. You interact with us. You reason with us. And you call us to the purpose that you've designed from us from the very beginning, Lord. And I just thank you for that this morning. I thank you that you're alive. I thank you for what that means. And those of us who are wayward today, those of us who have walked away, those of us who've been disappointed, those of us who can't clearly see you because that thing's in a way, Lord, I pray that you would just remove anything that complicates our relationship with you. Remove anything that frustrates our purpose and, and our call to what you've called us to do. Would you just remove that by your spirit? And as we worship you today, Lord, as we give you praise because you're resurrected, Father, I pray that you would do business with us in our hearts today. Would you change our course? Would you change our path? Draw us close to you. Change us for the better. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.